You may be seated. It seems to me that there are two kinds of advice columns. The traditional model is very top-down. Some bona fide expert will weigh in about a noise in your transmission or how to remove a stain from a sofa or address an envelope to an orthodox bishop or even what to do when one's in-laws won't stop gifting you with tacky handmade crafts. We are devoted readers because we believe that Click and Clack or Heloise or Emily Post or Prudence knows best, if not all. But there's also a bottom-up kind of column, too. Some of them were wiki before wiki was a thing, crowdsourced wisdom before crowds could gather behind the screens of our computers. And my favorite of these was the tips and techniques section in Fine Home Building magazine. This column did not deliver a ruling from on high. Actual readers, who were mostly ordinary carpenters and other tradespeople, readers would share some little trick or jig that solved a problem for them. And if your idea was among the best ones of the month, there'd even be a nice little line drawing next to it to accompany it. I'd be prouder of having an essay published in the Paris Review than if I'd have a jig I thought of appear of in Tips and Techniques. But in Tips and Techniques, you might learn that electrical wire cutoffs make really great trash bag ties on a job site, or, or that a drinking straw can keep your toilet flapper chain from getting hung up. I started reading the magazine back when I was an apprentice on a house framing crew, which is, you know, the guy who mostly carries things to people who know what to do with them. So even if you've been never, have never been asked to carry something large and unwieldy up a ladder, maybe you can still appreciate the life-changing insight that a C-clamp clenched down on one end makes a perfect little handle for a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. But to me, whether the expertise comes from a single guru from, or from the masses, what's most wonderful about these advice columns is the fellowship of readers. We all return, week after week, month after month, not just for the wisdom itself, but to find out again that somebody else has encountered the same everyday problems we have. Lots of someone's, in fact. In reading, we learn not only how to remove an ink stain from a favorite shirt, but but that a whole lot of people in this world also forget to retract their pens before dropping them in their pockets. In reading, maybe we feel a little bit less alone. In reading, we find ourselves part of a great fellowship of muddlers through. People just trying to figure this life out one stuck wingnut at a time. Initially, Jesus' words in today's gospel probably don't strike us as terribly helpful with regard to creating a fellowship, do they? In fact, they seem to emphasize and even celebrate some of the most persistent divisions among people. Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. Blessed to you who are hungry. Woe to you who are full. Blessed are you who weep. Woe to you who are laughing. We might think that the gist of the teaching is just Make sure that you're poor and hungry and weeping even better if you're hated, excluded, reviled, and defamed. How's that for a little Sunday good news, friends? But I think something more is going on here than a careful sorting out of the kinds of folks God likes from the kinds of folks God can't quite abide. And I think that to understand these blessings and woes, we need to look to what just precedes and follows them in Luke's Gospel. At the beginning of what we read this morning, we hear that Jesus came down 
and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And we're told that all the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. It seems important to place these beatitudes within the context of this healing. It seems important to remember that they're spoken by the one whose very presence heals, one from whom a power goes out and attracts crowds of all sorts of people from all kinds of places and actually makes them well. So it would be very strange if this Jesus suddenly turned on the people he just healed and set them at odds, wouldn't it? Rich against poor, hungry against full, sad against happy. And listen to what follows in Luke. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Peaceableness toward our enemies is at the heart of the reconciliation Jesus calls us to, right? That work of redemption God was up to in Christ was not about breaking up the world into smaller and smaller pieces. It was about reconciling a divided humanity to God and to one another. When we place the Beatitudes within this larger mission, maybe we realize that Jesus probably was not trying to sharpen divisions that had grown a little blurry. He was trying to reverse and break down divisions that had existed in this world for a very long time. Jesus' world, like ours, was already quite nicely divided, I think, between the blessed and the cursed. But Jesus turned even these essential divisions around, and a new possibility for fellowship began to emerge. He said that appearances can be deceiving, because the human assumption has long been that blessedness is always and everywhere marked by wealth and fullness and laughter. But Jesus says, woe to all of that. There's a blessedness that you do not understand. See, these hated ones, these excluded ones, these weeping ones, they're blessed. God counts them as righteous. There is a blessedness that you do not understand. And what's more, if you understand your own blessedness as evinced most clearly by your wealth or your full stomach or even by your happiness... Well, maybe you've missed the good news for yourself. Jesus shatters our ideas of what we thought blessedness looked like. Shatters them to the point of saying, you know, you don't even have to feel blessed. But before God, you are. Flannery O'Connor once wrote in a letter, the thought of everybody lolling about in an emotionally satisfying faith is repugnant to me. Sentimentality was not her chief virtue, But when Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn, don't you think that he is also relieving us of that idea that faith is mainly about my emotional satisfaction? Which is pretty unsettling at first blush. Why be Christian if it's not guaranteed to make me feel at least a little bit better, right? But imagine what kind of reconciliation and fellowship might be possible if we actually believed what Jesus said. Imagine rich and poor, each of them believing the other's blessedness did not depend on the externals of their lives, but upon the grace of God. Imagine how we might live together if we all actually believe that whether we feel like weeping or feel like laughing, 
This has not a thing to do with the deep blessedness every last one of us shares in God. If we don't hear this good news first, then Jesus' commands to love our enemies, I think, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who abuse us, well, then these commands are probably nothing but a new set of burdens to be taken on. But if we all share an essential blessedness in God, regardless of our different states and stations in this life, well, then treating my enemy as though he were blessed is really just acting as though the world really is put together like Jesus told us it is. Blessing those who curse us, that bears witness to the fact that God has never blessed only the ones we think ought to be blessed. God's blessing actually depends only upon God. Jesus told us of this blessedness that's ours already. He said you can't be too poor, too hungry, too hated, too excluded or defamed to be rid of it. He said you don't even have to feel it. So here's a suggestion. What if we stopped reading the Beatitudes as this stark list of incompatible categories and started reading them a little more like I did that tips and techniques section? As teachings for a kind of fellowship of the muddlers through, which were very much included and therefore maybe a little less alone in our muddling. But what if we also read Jesus' words and whether we're rich or poor, whether we're hungry or fed, Yes, even if we're happy or kind of feel like life's collapsing around us. What if we began to believe in a fellowship far deeper than our circumstances? Because Jesus' words don't just collect, connect a few oddballs who share one quirky affection for something. These words are meant to move us gradually out from ourselves. To those around us who share our state and even out to strangers and enemies and the most desperate sorts of lives we encounter. Rather than dividing us up, Jesus tells us the good news that we share a fellowship of blessedness with every other one of God's children. If we could just help one another rest a little more fully in this fact, imagine who else we might learn to welcome into our lives. And imagine how in such a fellowship, poor and hungry and weeping parts maybe of our own souls, the excluded and reviled parts of ourselves might also find a welcome here and maybe even begin to be healed.